0: Well, again, welcome to you. Welcome to everybody. And uh, yeah, it's good to be here. And it feels like it's going to be a nice day. Does everyone else have that feeling? It feels like it's going to be a nice day. Um, Matt with his shorts on definitely feels like it's going to be a nice day. So I want to know what, I want to ask you a question at least, what provokes you? Uh, what disturbs you? What causes you to get feelings of ire or anger or frustration? Um, Is it slow drivers that you get stuck behind? Is it late people who are always late and, oh no, sorry, sorry, it won't happen again. Um, Is it, People that are really arrogant, is it people that uh, are easily provoked? That was sort of funny, I thought thank you what What provokes you? What really gets uh, your your spirit to to be unsettled and to rise up and to feel something strongly uh, for me it's probably I mean, I could. I, how long do we have here, right? I only have one child in here today. Um, so I have at least three things that get me angry. And I'm routinely trying to apologize for that anger. Um, but I get provoked. You get provoked. We all get provoked. The Apostle Paul gets provoked. But what should uh, Jesus followers... I'm going to move this if that's okay. What should... Jesus followers, be provoked by? If you consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, what should provoke you? What should not provoke you? What do you get provoked by that you shouldn't? Maybe some possible answers. Injustice. Does injustice provoke you? That's a, it's a more common phrase these days. Does, does sin provoke you? either someone else's or your own, uh, perpetual habits of doing things that are from an unredeemed sort of place, does, does lostness across the vast globe of humanity, does that, does that really get you um, concerned, feeling a sense of desperation, feeling a, a call to action in your spirit? Do uh, Syrian refugee camps provoke you? I mean, if if you didn't know, we haven't heard about those in a long time, really, in the big story of news. But it's still happening. There's still 5.6 million Assyrians that are still trapped in camps, mostly in Turkey, because Syria is still having a civil war. We We just don't hear about it. But does that sort of thing provoke you i mean it does to some degree i'm sure if you have a heart that beats but how many of us say that idolatry provokes us how many of us say idolatry provokes us because strangely enough or not strange i don't know it depends on your reading of scripture But the issue of idolatry is at the heart of our passage today. Idolatry, I-D-O-L, idol, right? You get the idea. This is in Acts 17, verses 16 through, I think it's supposed to be 36, but we're only going to focus on um, a couple verses here because this is such a broad vast concept that's unfolding here in this narrative that we can't really deal with all of it but we're going to focus on what i think is what a key aspect and that's the idea of idolatry so before i go any further let me uh, just just say a prayer ask for god to bless our time and uh, then we'll continue Lord, we are here and we desire to be a people that are moved by the things you're moved by and to see things from your perspective and not merely our own. And so as we read this story today about the Apostle Paul and a very interesting and fascinating situation that he found himself in, may we discern and see the things that you call us to see through your scripture, your revelation to us. And bless our time this morning. Amen. So as I usually do, I like to try to give you what I think is the big sort of central component message of this passage, or at least how it's kind of shaped its way into the sermon. Here it is. Through Jesus, people can transform from being worshipers of creation to become worshipers of the Creator. And this is our God ordained calling as people made in His image. Let me say that again. Through Jesus, people can transform from being worshipers of creation to worshipers of the Creator. This is our God ordained calling as people made in His image. So, if you're not familiar with the story, Paul is now in Athens. Of course, Athens. Has anyone ever heard of Athens? Of course, you have. It's the same Athens that is in existence today. So, Paul is in Athens and he's walking around and he sees um, things in this ancient city and he gets provoked by the things that he sees. He's provoked, he's irritated, he's deeply distressed. Depending on what your passage is, it might have um, an English translation like that. But he's provoked by idolatry. The ancient writer uh, Pliny, he suggested in a ancient text that he wrote about that there were no less than 73,000 statues and idols in the city of Athens 73,000 so I think for us as modern sort of western living people uh, that's probably really hard to conceptualize but 73,000 statues or idols that are affiliated with idolatry as you walk around the city of ancient Athens here's what one scholar says that Paul would have seen as he was doing this. Looking south across the Agora, or the the marketplace that we see him uh, taking part in today, Paul would have seen a large number of temples with their cult images and altars dedicated to the worship of Zeus, Athena, Aphrodite, Apollo, Ares, Hephaestus, The mother of the gods, Nike, the 12th gods, mystery religions, and the emperor Augustus, who sponsored um, the, the building of one of the temples. And so they enshrined him as someone who was worthy of worship for the ancient Athenians did. So that's what he would have seen. That's what he would have noticed. And some of those names are familiar to us, right? Because we read about them in classical literature, classical mythology, But it's not just the city of Athens that struggled with this ancient concept of idolatry. The biblical story is actually a series of demonstrations that God's people themselves, they struggled mightily with this issue of worshiping other gods. And if you know anything about The Old Testament certainly, but the Bible in general, that was like the major thing you weren't supposed to do. Yet, they always found themselves in this place where that's exactly what was happening. And the Bible pulls no punches about that. It talks about it all over the place. So the biblical story is a series of demonstrations of God's people struggling to not worship something in creation instead of their creator. Think of the golden calf exodus, probably the uh, classic sort of demonstration in Exodus 32. God had just rescued the people out of Egypt, and they come out into the wilderness, and Moses kind of goes away for for a day or two, and they get a little bit nervous and freaked out, and they say, what are we going to do? Aaron, you're our leader now. We don't have a God here anymore because Moses is gone. We don't know what happened to him. What are we going to do? Make us a God. So Aaron does. And so they produce this this golden calf. Essentially, the story is, as they come out of Egypt, God rescues them. He enters into a formal relationship with this group of people, the Israelites, the Hebrews that came out of Egypt. They have a ceremony that's likened to a marriage ceremony. Where God marries the people. I will be your people. You will be my God. Moses leaves. So the representative is gone. And the people freak out. They get nervous. And they produce this idol. This calf. Around which they bow down and they worship. And they celebrate. And sticking with the marriage metaphor. It's as if they just got married. In the church. And before the party starts. The bride is stopping off to have sexual relations with the best man. It's something like that that's happening. The absurdity of it is just hard to miss. The association of idolatry and the metaphor of adultery is a very powerful and prevalent one throughout Scripture. Isaiah 6, we read about the judgment of Israel is that they will become... God says they will become dumb and deaf and blind, just like the idols that they have carved and crafted and bowed down to. Ezekiel 8, you get this very fascinating, um, very powerful presentation of how Ezekiel, God's Spirit, is taking him on a tour through the ancient temple in Jerusalem. And he's taking them room by room. Look at what's happening in here. Look at what's happening in here. And Ezekiel sees all these images of the temple, the holy place where God's spirit dwelled on the earth. And inside are all these situations of pagan worship and idolatry happening. They've set up shrines to other gods inside the holiest place on earth for the nation of Israel. And they violated the biggest and most important commands in their relationship with God as his wife, if you will. It was like moving another sexual partner into into the marriage bed. That's what's going on here. Ezekiel sees this. So Paul's people, the Israelites, they had a long history of being idolaters. And eventually it led to their destruction. It was the major reason why Jerusalem was eventually destroyed by the Babylonians. So Paul was very sensitive to this history. And there was a purification process that came along as Jesus' day drew near where the Jewish people purified themselves and banished that sort of idolatrous behavior more and more stringently, trying to get back closer to what they thought they were supposed to be. So Paul was a part of that movement, and he was very sensitive to this issue of idolatry. But read what he wrote in Romans 1. Paul's words say this, Idolatry makes, to, makes fools of us. He says. He summarizes and he says it degrades, it corrupts, it blunts our humanness. And idolatry devalues God as the creator. So in Romans 1, he writes claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served what had been created instead of the creator. Ancient people served idols. They, they, They crafted idols. They had a whole system of belief that went into to it and factored into it. They had ceremonies where the, the idol was seen to have come alive, if you will. It's called the, the, the mouth-washing ceremony or the mouth-opening ceremony. It's quite fascinating to read about. But ancient people served idols. They bowed down to them. They worshiped them. They fed them. They clothed them. They gave them water to drink because they had needs that need to, needed to be met. They had needs that they wanted to be met. Just like we do. So the various fertility cults, for instance, is all about getting the gods to provide and to produce either for you know your livestock or your crops so that you would have enough food to eat to feed your family. In a world where you were so reliant upon the natural order of things, You have a bad year for your crops, your family starves. You have a bad year where the wolves kill the significant aspect of your flock of sheep. You have a really bad, hard time. It was a real need that they needed met. They needed to produce livestock and crops to live. So they prayed, they worshipped, they served the fertility cults all around them. It made perfect sense. Still makes perfect sense. But they had true needs they were trying to get met. And that's what's going on in, in Athens. All of these idolatrous systems, statues, they were there for the people to have a need, a real need met. And it's easy for us as modern people to think, oh, that, that seems so silly, uh, first of all, that's probably a really arrogant attitude that we would have, because this sort of stuff still happens in other parts of the world, even today. I have a student in one of my classes uh, that talks about this. He talks about coming from Sudan and what they did in his village. And it's like reading biblical texts, the way that they, they had ceremonies to provide for a blessing on their crops— But this happens even in modern Western intellectual societies, advanced societies. So even in our Western scientific postmodern society, we have needs, right? We all have needs. You feel them every day. I feel them every day. But we don't express the need to have those needs met. By crafting idols and erecting statues. We, we do that instead by following concepts, adhering to movements, subscribing to ideologies, thinking about a worldview that works best for us. We erect social structures that we think will meet needs, whether it be social upward mobility. How do we win friends and influence people so that we feel connected to a society and people around us? But we have these deep-seated needs that we are trying to have met today, and we produce idols in a way, just like ancient people did. All right, so I have some quotes, and I'm interested to see if anyone might know who the quotes are from. So if you do, feel free to to say so. But if you don't, uh, don't feel bad. I think they're on the slide. And I got the first one. Let me see if it comes up. There you go. What we're doing here is we're trying to demonstrate how modern society expresses idolatry, all right? And how artists and writers have have talked about this. So here's a famous line by someone. Gonna have to serve somebody, right? That language of service, and that you're going to have to. I think to me it's evoking this idea that we all have to serve somebody. Does anyone know who said this? By any chance? Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Yes. On his Christian album. I think it's, is it Slow Train? Slow Train Coming? I think that's his quote-unquote Christian, Christian album. Um, not my term. I think that was other people's terms. So Bob Dylan said that. Second. Second slide. The opposite of Christianity is not atheism, but idolatry. This is a modern theologian writing this. This is his claim. Does anyone know by chance? I wouldn't expect people to, but you might. The opposite of Christianity is not atheism, but idolatry. This is a man named Peter Kreeft who wrote this. All right, a few more. And again, I'm just trying to efficiently demonstrate that people are establishing that idolatry happens today, okay? Another one, the human mind, or you may have heard about this, is the human heart. The human mind is a forge or a factory of idols. Does anyone know who said something like that? It comes in different versions, this quote. This one's a little bit older. This was John Calvin. John Calvin wrote this. The human mind is a factory of idols. It produces them. Here's another quote. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps the best one is worship. This was said by Tim Keller. Writer, pastor that some of you are likely familiar with. Probably one of the most descriptive. Descriptions or um, definitions of idolatry in a modern context. Just two more. The next one: idolatry is when you worship what you should use, and use what you should worship. Pithy. It's a pithy a chiastic saying. There, idolatry is what you is when you worship what you should use and use what you should worship. G. K. Chesterton. 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 Chester Tun. Thank you. Said that. And then finally, this is maybe the best one. You see what you think. I'm just kidding. I'll tell you, I am the one that came up with this quote, so. <laughs> All right. Humans were created to worship. This is my summary. Humans were created to worship. Our sin keeps us from worshiping our creator, but we still worship. We worship creation. That's my, that's my tightest way of trying to summarize what I think idolatry expresses today. The same problem that was expressed in the ancient world just comes out in different forms. Well, and there's a lot of people that talk about those forms. So we'll talk about it a little bit. But this is what Paul is dealing with. And it's, it's hitting him in the face. And he's disturbed by it. You and I are likely not disturbed by it. We're likely not provoked by it. So idolatry shows up on the surface for all of us, for ancient people and for us. But really it's about these deep structures of life. These deep, real needs that humans are seeking to be met. That's where idolatry comes from. So the frugal, money-hoarding person could be on one level, committing idolatry, because the deep need they're, they're seeking to have satisfied is a feeling of security, right? A sense of provision. But the person racked with debt to fund vacations that they can't afford to keep up with the latest technology to, is advancing an idolatry also. To seek joy and satisfaction, perhaps. So money is one of those expressions that's really easy. And it can happen if you're like a really tight person. You know, a tight lad, I used to say growing up. Or if you like spend your money like it's going out of style. In both expressions, there can be an act of idolatry happening. So this deep needed structure is down deep is what we want to think about money is just on the surface but the deep needed structure is where the idolatry lies and both kinds of people are revealing that somehow in some way god is not sufficient he's ineffectual so at some level they install a god to meet their needs so what's the solution here well, first of all, Paul points them to something bigger than they have imagined. He spoke, he debated in synagogues. He went and he spoke with Greek philosophers. He goes to the market at the Areopagus in, uh, in ancient Athens where these people would gather and debate. And he speaks and he points to them something bigger. It's as if he says this in verse 24. The God who made the world, he's speaking to them. Again, presenting his cause. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. In verse 29, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is fashioned. So contrary to convention, this phrase is, we shouldn't think that divine nature is to be fashioned. That would have been mind-blowing to them, because that's all they did. For ancient people, God is big. Paul's speaking to ancient people. He's saying God is big. God is bigger than Zeus. He's bigger than Athena. He's bigger than Caesar. He is worthy of worship. For us, Paul would say, God is big enough to provide security when money fails. He's big enough to meet needs of joy and satisfaction. He's bigger than anything you've dreamt of. So don't turn aside and worship something else. So Paul points them to something bigger. But he also says, because God is bigger, in verse 30, he tells them to repent. Repent, turn around. Look at this resurrected man, the man Jesus. And this resurrection, it it demonstrates that God's bigness is over everything. And reducing him down, or worshiping a reduced god is silly turn around don't do that and in verse 32 what we see happen is some people get the message many people don't some revile him they want to kick him out of the city but a few they believed what he said it connected it made sense So in the end, idolatry is about our conception of God. If we see God as the big, powerful, need-meeting God that he is, we won't have the tendency to worship idols that we tend to have. But if our conception of God distorts the God that we see in Scripture, we become worshipers of a false God. And so like Paul said, thinking we are wise, we become fools. We exchange the eternally powerful, big God for something small, impotent, and lifeless. Jesus' resurrection was and is the continuing demonstration that God is bigger than we conceive. He's bigger than death. He's bigger than sin. He's bigger than fear. He's bigger than these small things that we tend to want to bow down to to get our needs met. So pray with me. Lord, we are thankful that you reveal yourself to your people. And we are fragile. We have needs, Lord, that you know better than we do about. We thank you for Christ who walked on this earth and experienced those needs as any human being experienced. And yet he walked in perfect faith looking to you to provide and to meet his needs. And so may we be inspired to live out the calling, to be worshipers of the one true God who does not have need to go elsewhere, to turn away from you, to turn towards something that cannot help us. But Lord, teach us also to celebrate the good gifts that you bring into our life and to use those as an opportunity to worship you in your kindness, and your goodness to us. But Lord, uh, keep us from turning from the creator to the creation. In Christ's name, amen.
1: But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our, our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus said to him, I am the, breath of, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. because there is one bread we who are many are one body for we are all for we all partake of the one bread please partake uh, as i read the next passage for i received from the lord what i also delivered to you that the lord jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this and as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, thank you for the propitiation of our sins, for sending your son to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, from all idolatry, and to bring us back into right relationship with you.